Judges chapter 8 is where we will be today. Judges chapter 8. Don't ask me why, but this week I was reading about candles. Just something that I just kind of came across, and it just is providential in that way where I think it serves as a helpful illustration for us today. Some candles burn better than others, and it, it depends on the, the substance of what the candle is made out of. There are, if, if all other factors are equal, there are two primary factors that impact how a candle burns. One is the wax, the other is the wick. I learned this week that the best wax the world has to offer is, is poured beeswax. There's, there's rolled beeswax, which actually burns relatively quickly, but poured beeswax, it burns the longest, it burns the cleanest, and it will burn up to twice as long as other comparable candles of a similar weight. If you're unfamiliar and if you don't know how to, how to discern what kind of wax you might have in a particular candle, really the only way to figure out how the quality of that candle is to light it and observe how it burns. Some candles burn so fast that it causes the wax to melt and drip and it makes a huge mess. Growing up, we would have these, these candlelight services for Christmas Eve, and everyone would get these tiny little candles. Where they were the cheapest, quick-production candles that you can imagine. They dripped wax everywhere. We started had to manufacture these little, these, these little holders that would try to catch the wax, but even that wouldn't contain all the wax because it, it would burn so fast, and the wax would drip so much that it would just make this massive mess all over the place. Other candles burn more slowly and they consume all the wax as it burns, leaving essentially nothing behind by the time it gets to the end. Some candles burn so fast that they actually get drowned in their own wax and it extinguishes the flame. But the best candles will burn long, steadily, and a clean burn, providing light for an extended period of time and giving off that pleasant aroma for others to enjoy. As we have followed the life of Gideon, we have seen a man that, if we were to compare him to a candle, we might say, this, this, this was a man who was difficult to get this candle lit. <laughs> he was not readily wanting to be used for the purpose for which God was desiring to see build into his life. He, he was very hesitant. He was a fearful man. He did not want to step forward and accomplish his calling. But once it was finally lit, once he was finally ready to step forward in faith, he burned brightly. He did what it was that he was called to do. He, he stepped forward into the battle and he shouted out for the Lord. But there are some ways in which we might say that you know, maybe Gideon doesn't actually resemble a a candle so much. Maybe he didn't have a wick. Perhaps it was more of a fuse. Because the sad reality is, is that he quickly and sadly burned out and left a mess behind. If you haven't already did, done so, I, we are in Judges chapter 8, and I'm going to pick things up here in a moment. Again, in our story, we have this man who is a truly a coward in every sense. God had to work on him. God had to provide multiple signs for him to bolster his faith before he would step forward and do what God had told him to do. But at the end of the day, he finally did so. 
weak as though his faith was, he finally stepped forward in faith and did what God required. And he delivered the Israelites from the hand of the Midianites. Gideon finally, as we saw in our last study, that finally was this man of valor. Like we've been looking for this guy. The, the angel of the Lord said he was this mighty man of valor. Well, finally he's here. He's stepping forward. Boldness. Sadly, his story does not end well. I made a remark to, to Lizzie this week that this is, this is not your typical Mother's Day sermon, right? This is not what you typically uh, have for uh, not the passage. It's not a go-to passage for a Mother's Day text. Well, despite that reality, we are committed working through the books of the Bible. And so as we continue working through text, this is what we have before us. This is what God has providentially led us to this day. And so this is the text that we will study. Gideon, the man with a meteoric rise, went from zero to hero in the blink of an eye. Sadly, not ending well. I don't know if things just got to his head Perhaps he just thought, well, you know what, I've arrived. I'm here. Perhaps he thought he no longer needed the Lord. But in any case, in our text today, we're going to see four failures of leadership in the life of Gideon. Four failures that reflect various dangers of thinking that you can handle life on your own. Dangers of thinking that, that, that when we achieve something, that it is achieved by our own accomplishments, our own merits. Four dangers of losing sight of the king and the havoc that that can wreck in our lives when we begin to think that we are rulers of our own domain. It's led to tragedy in the life of Gideon, and as we will see, it will, can lead to tragedy in each of our lives as well. So let's look at our text, and we're going to look at them under the headings of four failures. And the first failure that we see is failure with internal opposition. There are two kinds of failures that Gideon makes with his people in the face of opposition. And the first is that when challenged, he goes the route of flattery instead of explaining the situation. He goes the route of flattery over explanation. Judges chapter 8 verse 1. Then the man of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? They accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abiezer? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to, to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. And there's a couple of things of note within this first paragraph. First, if, if you were to read the end of chapter 7 and to, to flow right from that right into chapter 8, you, you might there's an opportunity for a little bit of confusion because in chapter 7, verse 24, it says this, Gideon sent messengers through all the hill country of Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them. So Gideon has just called out Ephraim, and now here we are in the beginning of chapter 8, and we see Ephraim is upset. 
why did you not call us out? And you might think, well, what isn't that strange? He just did that. Why are they upset when he just called them out? The answer to that is that they are upset because they weren't called out sooner. Gideon did not call them out when he was first assembling his army. And so they felt slighted by that. They felt slighted by that. They were, they were upset that they were not brought into this opportunity because, again, in those days uh, when, when warfare would go on, there was opportunity for the spoils of war to accomplish, and then you would enrich yourself off of that. And, and so Ephraim likely was upset that they weren't able to partake in the spoils of war And so they felt not just left out, but slighted because of that. And so it says they accused him fiercely. Like they were were ready to go to war with Gideon in this moment. That that word for fiercely is is used in other contexts that speaks of of a strong reaction to something or a strong, it communicates something very strong. So back in chapter 4 when Sisera has a fierce oppression upon the people. That's the same word that is used here to say that they fiercely accused him. Now they, were, they, they were ready to rumble, right? They were ready to, to go to battle over this situation. So how does Gideon respond? He responds with flattery. Well, what have I been able to do? Like, what's... <laughs> you guys, like, you're... Your just your gleanings of your harvest, the leftovers from your harvest, that's better than our entire harvest. He's just really trying to puff up the Ephraimites there. Besides, you guys got the grand prize anyway. You captured Oreb and Zeb, so I've not even done anything. It's, it's you guys. You guys are the real heroes in the midst of this. He chooses flattery to help diffuse the situation. In the moment, it's effective, right? They hear that and they say, oh, you know what? You're right, you're right, Gideon. We're not too shabby after all. I was reading some commentators on this, and they were pretty much all but praising Gideon for how he handled this and saying, oh man, look, look at how diplomatic he's being. What a statesman. He is, he is diffusing the situation with his, with his tact and his diplomacy. I'm not convinced that this was a positive reaction on the part of Gideon. Scripture speaks clearly to the issue of flattery, and it is never in a positive light. Flattery is always condemned in God's Word. Gideon certainly had other options to the situation. He did not have to respond in this way. He could have simply explained how it is that these events unfolded. If he became convinced that he had done something wrong in not calling out the Ephraimites, he could have apologized and said, you know, you guys are right, I should have called you out and I didn't. If he was sure that he did no wrong, he could have explained how the Spirit of God had clothed him and called out certain tribes and that God sent most of the people away anyway. So even if he had called them out, they would have, most of them would have returned back to their homes in any case. So... He did not have to choose flattery, but he didn't do any of that. He chose to be a sly politician and flatter his audience to placate their wrath. And I think that's a failure for how he interacted with this opposition. He chose flattery over explanation. 
that wasn't the only kind of opposition he faced. In response to another situation, he, he chooses ferocity, viciousness over patience. Pick it up with me in verse 4. Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over, he and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted, yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the men who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, well, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hand that, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there he went up to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered. And he said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. First, we want to understand that, you know, where the people of Succoth and Penuel are coming from. All right, their fear is that if Gideon is unsuccessful and, and Midian regains control of the region, then Midian, and then Midian learns that they helped Gideon, that that's going to have negative consequences upon them. They're fearful. They're afraid. They lack faith in the moment. Now think with me for a moment. Can you think of anyone else in the midst of this story who exhibited a strong tendency towards fear? Gideon, right? Gideon himself. Good old Gideon, the man who was constantly afraid, the man who was uh, threshing wheat in the wine press, the man who was afraid to go and, and tear down the idols, the man who was afraid because of the men of his own countrymen. This man who demanded a sign of the fleece and then another sign of the fleece in reverse. This is the one who has constantly been afraid, and now he encounters individuals who likewise share the same fears that he would have had just perhaps a matter of weeks prior. But how does he respond? Does he show the same patience and the same reassurance that God showed to him? No, rather he threatens them with harm. Now the question becomes, does he follow through? He's threatening them. Now how does he follow through? And even before that, is there's kind of a little bit of irony in verse 9 when he says, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Are you really coming in peace if you intend to destroy this tower here? Well, let's read on and see how this, this section continues to unfold. Verse 10 now Zeba and Zalmunna were in Karkor with the army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east. For there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. Now they fell in that moment when the 300 uh, men from Gideon had broken their pots and the, the light shone and they said they shouted for the Lord, blew their trumpets and the army and the men were killing each other. They had fallen 120,000 men killing each other. Verse 11, and Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Noba and Jogbeha and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. Then Zeba and Zelmunna fled, and he pursued them and captured the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zelmunna, 
and he threw all the army into a panic. Notice the repetition of Ziba and Zalmunna, that those names are repeated in the text to, to highlight for us the significance of this moment. Gideon is capturing the kings of these oppressors, the very ones that have been oppressing Israel so strongly. He's got them now. Yes, the kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna. He threw them all, the army, into a panic. Verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Heres, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of... Are the are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with, and with them taught the men of Succoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. So Gideon does follow through on his promise. He does follow through. Instead of extending the same grace that he received from the Lord when he was a man of fear himself, when he showed fear, he asked for signs. Instead of responding in like manner to these people who exhibit the same fears, he treats the, his own people, this is a, these are his countrymen, he treats them with cruelty. Gideon, the one who is supposed to deliver the people from oppression, is now becoming an instrument of oppression himself. He captures a young man. He assembles a hit list. He goes into the cities not to execute justice, but to settle a personal vendetta. Gideon is no longer acting in such a way for the best interest of the nation, he is acting in his own self-interest in accomplishing his personal vendetta. Beats and whips the men of Succoth with thorns and briars. And then he goes beyond what was promised to Penuel. He told Penuel, I'll tear down this tower. Well, he goes beyond that. And he kills all the men of the city. Our hero has turned into the tyrant. A little bit reminded of a, maybe a silly illustration, but a scene from Star Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi is confronting Anakin about his actions and converting to the dark side. And he says to him, you have become the very thing you swore to destroy. And it seems that was what was happening to Gideon. These were his brethren. These were his countrymen. To one group, he... He flatters them in order to placate them and appease their anger. And to another group, he viciously oppresses. He failures to handle internal opposition with grace and dignity. It's the danger of thinking that, you know, that getting into a position of authority and, and and using that for our own purposes instead of the good of others around us, we can often internalize that and use it for our own self 
benefit or to accomplish our own ends. Or else other times we can, God can use situations within our lives to teach us and to stretch us and to grow us. And then we, we grow beyond a certain point and, and we learn, we've learned our lesson and so we're no longer stuck in this one pattern. But then we encounter other people that are stuck in that same pattern of where we used to be and we fail to show them the grace that God has shown us. And we treat them with contempt regarding where they are rather than recognizing, hey, that's where I used to be and God was gracious. Perhaps I can be an instrument of God's grace in this moment as well. Gideon lost sight of the mission. He's supposed to deliver Israel. He, he loses sight of the mission in order to pursue his own personal agenda and accomplish his personal vendetta. It, it clouded his judgment and those around him paid the price. He failed in regard to internal opposition. Secondly, though, he, his second failure is with his external enemies in handling the, those who are against him from the outside. He fails in how he handles them. Pick it up at verse 18. Then he said to Ziba and Zalmunna, Where are the men you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, Rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid. Because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise yourself and fall upon us. For as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna. And he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. Gideon's question in verse 18 might seem a bit strange. Where are the men you killed? Well, they're dead. So why are you asking about them? But, but that's actually the point. Gideon is in a, in, a, in a mocking and confrontational tone, is, is approaching these kings and saying, look, you killed these individuals. It's time for you to give an account for their lives. And their response is, is almost equally confrontational. They, they are in this, they're captured. In fact, there's really no, uh, their spunk in the midst of being a capture is remarkable because they... Uh, have mockery to give right back to Gideon. He says, they say, oh, they, um, they, every one of them, as, as you are, so were they. So they, lo they look just like you there, Gideon. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. Now, how do we understand that phrase? Well, okay, they were son of the king. They looked like princes, just, just like you do, Gideon. Seems that there might be a couple of insults rolled into that phrase. The son of a king, uh, you might expect a prince to, you know, growing up in luxury. Uh, he's a soft individual. Like, ah, oh, you've just grown up in luxury. You, you're not really a man. You're just, this, you're just this prince. So it was an insult that direction. Or it might have been also a slight that, oh, you are a prince. That means you aren't the king. You're the son of a king. You aren't the king yourself. No matter what you think of who you think you are, Gideon, yeah, you're just you're just the son of a king. 
And thus there was the insult against Gideon. And Gideon seems to be quite bothered by this, right? He, he hears these insults and rather than, than accepting what he knows the Lord has brought into his life and sent him up to do, no, he, he takes offense to this and he orders his son to kill these men because that's what kings do. Kings order others to take care of the situation. So he decides to take a kingly action to say, oh, you don't think I'm a king? Well, I will show you. Son, kill these men. Well, the son's uncomfortable. He, he doesn't like that. It doesn't say exactly why he's afraid other than the fact that he is a young man. There's no military reason to be afraid. I think it's possible that we can, we can conclude that he is fearful knowing that there's something not right about this situation. So he doesn't want to act. He doesn't want to step forward. Gideon is not acting right. And so he is hesitant to fulfill the, this, uh, his father's request. Well, now it's another opportunity now for the Midianite kings to mock Gideon once again. Oh, you can't even do it yourself. You, come on, if you're such a man, prove it. Kill us yourselves. And Gideon seems to be particularly prone to reactionary things when he is given insults because he does exactly that. He rises up and he kills the kings. And notice he takes the kingly ornaments from their camels and takes them for himself. Everything about this situation runs counter to how God has instructed his people to handle these kinds of scenarios. Gideon has, is letting things affect him. He's letting things get to his head as he's making poor decision after poor decision. He is not interacting with these oppressors Biblically, according to what God's law would have said to how to handle it. He fails to handle that internal opposition well, and now here he is failing to handle his external enemies well and being affected by their insults and by their taunts. So as a result, he fails in how he handles that succumbing to the danger of being affected by the insults of others. A third failure is a failure with internal exaltation. First, there were individuals internally within the camp who were in opposition to him. Well, now that he's won the day, now they, now they want to raise him up. And we see a failing with how he has handled this. Let's read on verse 22. Then the men said, of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. They're offering to set up a dynasty. You will be king and your son and your grandson, and they will be established on the throne. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And that should have been the end of it. That should have been the end of it. The Lord is king. The Lord will rule. But that wasn't the end as things unfold. Verse 24. Then Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. 
Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now, just for clarity, that the Midianites that they conquered, that they killed in battle, they had the golden earrings because the Midianites were Ishmaelites. And so they had taken the spoil of the, of the war. They had taken the spoil from the, from the armies. And that's how they obtained these golden earrings. So Gideon is requesting those earrings from the spoil of war. Verse 25, and they answered, oh, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw into it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings is he, that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's 43 pounds of gold in today's, in, in you transfer the shekels into, into pounds. That's 20, uh, 43 pounds of gold in today's dollars. It's about $1.1 million. It's a hefty sum. Gideon just got rich. And that was beside the crescent ornament and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian and beside the collars that were around the necks of the camels. Gideon made an ephod of, of it, of that gold, and he put it in his city of Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to, and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more. The land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Drubbable, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now it says Drubbable. That's still talking about Gideon. Remember, his name was changed. He was given that new name when he tore down the altar. So Drubbable, that is Gideon. Verse 30, now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Gideon's words in verse 23 should again, should have been the end of the matter. I will not rule over you, but my, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And like, yes, that's exactly what should happen. That's exactly what these people need. They've been chasing after all these false gods and these false idols. What they need is to submit themselves to the rule of the one true God. But Gideon's rejection of kingship was nothing more than false humility. And what unfolds from his rejection reveals that. First, he collects tribute. Again, something kings do. Just got rich, $1.17 million. Second, he uses that tribute to set up a place of worship, which may have also established his hometown as the capital city. Third, he multiplies wives to himself. That's not something everyone did in that culture, but it was particularly common for rulers and kings. Fourth, he names his son Abimelech, which, now catch this, he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. After rejecting the kingship and saying, oh, no, 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 I, I won't be the king, he then goes and names his son my father is king. It seems that the insults from the king of Midian, the kings of Midian, really stuck in his craw. Like he was really bothered. Oh, yeah, you're the son of a king. You're not really a king. And he did everything he could to establish himself as a king in Israel, even though he spoke pious words. No, the Lord will rule. He effectively established himself 
as king. Instead of humbling himself, he allows the people to exalt him to a place where they will literally come to worship this ephod that he made rather than worship the one true God. And as a result of his failure with the internal exaltation, with people seeking to raise him up and place him on this pedestal and say, saying no, 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 and meaning it, as a result of that failure, it has consequences and impact upon the next generation. And we see that he fails with the next generation. Verse 32, to close out the chapter, verse 32, And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal beareth their God. Baal beareth literally means Baal of the Covenant, which is a further, if we just think about the insult that that would be upon the one true God, upon Yahweh, the one who has made a covenant with Israel, and now they're calling Baal, the Baal of the Covenant. The people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Gideon failed to set up the next generation to follow the Lord. He himself led them into idolatry with his own actions. Right? He's, he was the one who initially cut down the Asherah pole and tore down the altar. In fact, the name Gideon means the one who hacks, a hacker, the one who chops. He chopped down the Asherah pole. And now you could say that by his actions, he is chipping away and hacking at the morality of the people of Israel as he now sets up this ephod in the place of the one true God. The one who initially tore down the false gods has now become the snare, and the people are drawn away into spiritual prostitution. And drawn away, and now Gideon is a snare, and it results in the falling away in future generations. Rather than facing oppression from without, Gideon now sows the seeds that lead to etern internal rot that bears fruit within his own generation, but to an even greater degree in the generations that immediately follow. The text says that they did not remember, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, verse 34. And that, that flows from Gideon. Gideon forgot the Lord in the midst of this whole chapter as he deals with an internal oppression or opposition rather and as he, as he deals with the, the situations that unfold rather than heeding the voice of the Lord and what he would have him to do, he takes matters into his own hands. Gideon has forgotten the Lord and as a consequence, the people also forget the Lord. As leadership goes so goes the people. Gideon has failed to handle internal opposition well. 
He has failed to deal with his enemies well. He has failed to handle the praise and the exaltation of his brethren well. And he has failed in his responsibility to entrust the truth of God's word to the future generation. And so we see the sad ending to the life of Gideon. By all accounts, this is a bit of a depressing text. (laughs) Really a downer. Just, man, Gideon, just crash and burn. But as we think about the reality of what's here, you know, it didn't have to be this way, right? This didn't have to be Gideon's story. It didn't have to be the end for, for Gideon at that time. And this doesn't have to be our story today. Gideon provides the answer in his own words of of what would have corrected all of these failures. The answer is in his own words if he had just lived it out and followed through with what he said in verse 23. No, I will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. The people didn't need Gideon to be their king. They needed it to submit to the Lord as their king. They needed the Messiah to come and rule over them as king. This story in the book of Judges functions as a bit of a, of a turning point within the book. Up to this point, we've been seeing the judges and how they've, they've, they've done different things. And most of the stories have been very positive about the actions of the judges. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, now we have a judge who has clear moral failings within his own life. And now the the theme of the need for the king is being raised. And this is a theme that's going to continue on through the rest of the book. The need for the king. The rest of the book contains the struggles of the people as they deal with their desire for the king and the rejection of the Lord as their king. As we consider the failures of Gideon, as we consider the solution to what should have been evident there, and as we reflect upon the principles that we can bring down into our lives today, you know, when we are in subjection to the king, we don't need flattery. We can speak truth in love and leave the results up to our king, even if that means we will be killed. When we are in submission to the king, we will be so focused on the mission that our own sinful desires will be, seem insignificant by comparison to that which he has called us to. When we are in submission to the king, we will not have to accomplish our own revenge, but can rest in the words that the king has given us, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. When we are in submission to the king, our eyes will be on him. And so we won't be tempted to view our own accomplishments and our own self-aggrandizement. That might tempt us to make us think more of ourselves than we ought to think. No, when our eyes are on the king, we will say, no, the Lord will rule over me. The Lord ought to rule over all. And when we are in submission to the king... We will be doing all we can to show the next generation what it looks like to love and serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is so gracious to us, the one who is patient with us even when our faith falters. 
and we can show the next generation that same patience that we have been shown. It is when we lose sight of the king that it leads to failure. But when the Lord rules over us, we can be at peace, whatever may come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this text and for your word. Lord, I pray that we can be faithful individuals who will live lives in subjection to you, our king. I pray that you would cause us to be aware of the failures in the life of Gideon, that we, they may serve as a warning for us, as your word says in the New Testament, the things that were written before were written for our instruction, for our learning, to serve as a warning for us. May we be instructed by this text. May we not be tempted to take our eyes off of the king, to get focused on our own personal agendas, losing sight of that to which you have called us. And may we always fully submit and subject ourselves to the king, to King Jesus, the one who will one day call all nations to bow before him. And all will bow. Every knee on heaven and on earth, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We look forward to that day. I pray that we will live as though we are under your lordship today. I pray all of this in the name of your only Son, that Jesus Christ, who is Lord of lords. Amen.